Okay, so Abram and Nicodemus. These are two really interesting characters, I think, and, and these stories, these two stories, I think, are, um, are really interesting. Um, and stories have a way of sticking to us a lot better than just information. Uh, when we hear a story, it often touches us somewhere inside, and we just tend to remember them better than facts. So I want to look at these stories, because these are sort of small stories in the grand story of the Bible, because the Bible is one story from beginning to end. It's one story from Genesis 1 to Revelation, I'm going to forget the number, 22 something. <laughs> but, um, and each is an important event in the ongoing story of creator and creation. And these two stories have lots to, of things to teach us, especially about calling. Both men embark on a dangerous journey. Abram is told, told to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This was dangerous because Abram lived in a violent land and he lived with violent people. A few verses earlier, we learned that Terah, his father, was a Chaldean. And in Habakkuk, if you read there, the Lord calls the Chaldeans a bitter and hasty nation who are dreaded and fearsome and come for violence. In those days, people depended on their community, their family and neighbors they knew for protection. There was also no welfare or governor, government support, so to leave your country made you a refugee, and to leave your kindred left you without possible help in troubled times, and to leave you your family, well, that left you without any security at all. This forced Abram to trust God and God alone, a God he may have just recently met. He lived in Mesopotamia, a pagan culture with many gods. At, la at that time in Ur, his hometown, Nana, the moon god, was actually the, the number one god at the time. Joshua says in 24.2, long ago your forefathers, including Terah and the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. So we don't know if God had been building a relationship with him or just one day said go. And not just go. The Hebrew phrase beginning this verse is lech lecha, which carries a weight of urgency. It's better translated, go already, go forth, go immediately, don't hesitate. Jewish scholars agree that Abram's departure and abandonment of his old life was abrupt. There's some question whether Abram was obedient right away. In Genesis 11:31, it says that Terah took Abram and family to go to Canaan, but stopped in Haran. So it sounds like it was Terah's idea to go to Canaan for some reason, but he thought better of it and stopped in Haran. His brother's name was Haran, so that could have been where the kin were. In Acts 7, Stephen says that Abram was called out of Ur and stopped in Haran, which may explain why God was sort of being emphatic, go already, leave all your security. So he was called on what some would call a reckless journey, called to a promised land, whatever that was. But Abram went, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Nicodemus also did something that might have been called reckless. 
he was a Pharisee after all and a leader of the Jews, which means he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus addresses Nicodemus as the teacher. In Greek, it's hodidaskalos, using the definite article with the sense that Nicodemus is the great teacher. Presumably, most, if not all of his cohorts hated Jesus. So to visit him could mean losing everything, status, position, money, and some historians say that he did. His name in Hebrew was Nakdimon, and he could be the Nakdimon Ben-Gorion the Talmud speaks glowingly of and notes that though once one of the three richest men in Jerusalem, he became poor, the inference being that he became a Christian and he was persecuted and lost everything. And certainly reading John 7.51 where he defends Jesus to the Pharisees and John 19.39 where he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus' body, bringing 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes for burial worth between $100,000 and $200,000 in today's market, that would seem to indicate that he did become a believer. So God's call is dangerous. You look through the Bible and read about saints and missionaries, and you never find God calling anyone to just eat, drink, and be merry. We've toned it down some. Now, nowadays, we just, God just moves us out of our comfort zone. And sometimes we just come right out and admit that God just wants me to be happy. From my experience, the latter group is rarely happy. And in my experience, those who accept the dangerous call tend to be happy. I know a man from a previous church who was the CFO of a major hospital. He would say things like, you have to think rich to be rich. He was an okay guy, friendly enough, but businessman through and through. His wife, on the other hand, was the daughter of a missionary and always wanted to do missions. She was, the mission, she was on the missions committee and arranged mission trips through the New York School of Urban Ministry, a mission to homeless. She could never get her husband to go. He was always very proper, and she was, however, always very joyful. We left that church to come here 15 years ago, so totally lost track of them. I spoke with someone recently who was still in contact with him, and he sent me this guy's newsletter. Apparently, he retired, and for the last five years, he's been in and out of Kenya, South Sudan, Angola, South Africa, Ethiopia, Malawi, and Zambia, setting up leadership conferences to strengthen and support healthcare providers for those on the periphery, marginalized and downtrodden. They're going to Niger next to help further develop the Danja Fistula Center, something we recently read about in Apostles' Read. As I read his stories in the newsletter, it, it, they just beamed with joy. Something ha I had not seen, and in my judgmental way, thought I'd never see in this guy. Not, not, nothing I ever expected. You could see that there was joy in his picture. He really just, just glows. He, he, he was a changed man, a man who apparently accepted God's call to danger. Now, speaking of Apostles' Reads, we're presently reading The Hobbit. If you're not familiar with it, the story is about a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. And if you know anything about hobbits, you know that they really don't like adventure. Because, but Gandalf calls him to the adventure. Bilbo doesn't want to go because he knows that adventure is a code word for danger. And 
we know that too, because you can't really have a, an adventure without danger. It's not an adventure then. That brings me to the next thing that God calls us to. He, God calls us to change. Uh, it changed Abram, a Gentile homeowner, into a Jewish wanderer. It changed Nicodemus, a rich Jewish Pharisee of status, into presumably a poor Christian with nothing. And you'll have to read The Hobbit <laughs> if you want to know what happens to Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> we also see in these stories that God's call is a call to sacrifice. It's costly. Abram gave up his home and family and security. There's no record that once Abram left, he ever saw his father again. And his father lived another 60 years. Nicodemus pr presumably gave up status, money, and comfort. I wanted to keep including Bilbo, but I realized that some people may not have read it, and so I don't want to give anything away and spoil it. So he'll have to exit. You never hear about or read about God telling someone to stay the same way. You're fine. Keep, your, keep, what, keep what you've got. Don't worry. To do something new, you've, you've got you've to... It, to go on an adventure, there's always required, something is required to, that you give up. And soon I'll get my words in the right order. <coughs> there's always a cost. If nothing else, you've got to give up what you're doing to do something else. Next, we should note that God's call includes a promise, however. Abram's is tough to beat. Verse 2 said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Not bad. He is still revered as the father of the Jews, and technically he's also the father of the Muslims and the Christians. Think about it. The first 11 chapters of Genesis were dismal. Hardly anyone worth mentioning except Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Everyone else was a disappointment at best. The fall, the murder, the world's destruction because God could only find one person worth saving in the entire earth, the Tower of Babel. Then God picks one guy, you. Obey, and you'll never be forgotten, and you'll forever be part of my title. I am the God of Abraham. Heady stuff. He's mentioned in 11 books of the New Testament, including all four Gospels. But he never saw any of it this side of heaven. When he died, he had basically Isaac, not much of a nation. Sarah was dead. He sent Ishmael away. And the six sons he had with his second wife, concubine Keturah, he sent away before he died. But Jesus tells us in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So sometimes God's promise is a promise delayed, but it's always fulfilled. Abraham did become a great nation. Against all odds, Israel still exists and is a power to be reckoned with. Abraham's name is great. His people are blessing. We are experiencing it firsthand. Look around. Abraham's blessing, right? <laughs> and Jesus also said that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the dead. Abraham is still very much alive and enjoying his promise. Nicodemus also received the promise. It wasn't quite as straightforward, but it was there. 
Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The implication is that those who are born again and born of water and the spirit will see and enter the kingdom of God. That, my friends, is a better promise than Abram got. His was earthly, time-constrained promise. We have a heavenly, eternal promise if we accept the call. God's call is to be born again and born from above. The Greek word anothen has both meanings, anew and from above. So to be born again is to become a new creation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Nicodemus had trouble understanding this, not because it was a new concept. It was actually a concept the Jews knew all about, but Jesus was interpreting it in a new way. According to Jewish custom, Nicodemus had already been born again four times. Jewish tradition of the time said that when a Jewish boy becomes bar mitzvah, he's considered born again. Also, when one is married, he is said to be born again. And to be a member of Sanhedrin, which he presumably was, he had to be, you had to be married. Also, a Jew is considered born again when he becomes a rabbi. And since Jesus called him teacher, he must have been a rabbi. And since Jesus also said, are you the teacher of Israel? That title implies that he was head of a rabbinical school, which also, as Jewish custom of the time, meant that he was born again. So Nicodemus felt that he'd done it all. He had been born again in all the ways that he knew of. He, he had already done all the ways that he knew of and that the Jews knew of. And that's why he asked, well, what am I supposed to do? Enter my mother's womb again and start all over? I, 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 he didn't get it. So Jesus then explained that one had to be born of water and the spirit, the water of baptism, repentance, and the spirit of God born from above. Now, the Greek have one word for giving birth and another for fathering a child. The word used here, genau, probably mispronouncing it, means to father a child. In this context, it would be to be sired by God. To be born anew and born from above is to repent or turn from who you are and allow God to father you. We were buried before, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 4. So then in this newness, we are led and tutored and corrected and loved and nourished by our Father in heaven. Abram was born again too. He turned from pagan worship and was led by the Father to a new home, a new name, a new life story, a new history, a new legacy. When God calls, he does not call us to go alone. He comes with us. Another thing we learn about God's call is that God's call is God's call. We don't get to tell God what we feel we're called to and have him just bless it. That's seen most clearly in Nicodemus. He had control of his four born-agains, and he thought, I, I know what to do. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. But Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Ruach, the word used here, can mean either the wind or the spirit. We can't see or control either. 
So Nicodemus, who followed the law and was in control of his life, after all, it was by his effort that he had garnered these four titles. I think he really wanted something, Jesus to tell him what to do. It's something that I often struggle with. Just tell me what to do. But Jesus took the control away and basically, basically said, you can't do this. Only God can. That may be why he blurted out, how can these things be? Because the Pharisees were all about control. control. They controlled themselves. They controlled the people. They controlled the law. They took it right out of God's hands and decided to edit it to their specifications. And I do that sometimes. I, I know that God says, go there. And I just say, okay, and I take off and then, you know, bump into a wall and finally realize, oh, I, I was supposed to make a left, you know. <laughs> um, so the, uh, here, here, the, hearing his call is something that is continuous. In Ur, Abram had control of his life. On the road, he was at the mercy of the desert and the people he didn't belong to. He, too, perhaps ran a bit ahead. If uh, Paul had read one more verse in Genesis, you would have heard, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land. There's no indication that God told him to go to Egypt. That was not necessarily part of God's call. And he got in trouble in Egypt. <laughs> so this new business of listening for God, he may have returned to being in control. And I find that very comforting because... That means that <laughs> I'm not the only one who messes up. But I think control is part of our default. We like to know what to do and, and, and be in control of that. And the wording is also interesting, interesting in verse 2. I will bless you. I will bless you and make your name great. Compare that with Genesis 11:4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's a real danger, and it's something we do all the time. You know, I'm a self-made man or woman. I did it my way. We are not in God's call when we try to make a name for ourselves. If I'm more concerned about my name than his, I'm in trouble. Finally, God's call is to be a blessing to others. God told Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That commission hasn't changed. We're grafted into Abraham. Paul said in Romans 4.16, Abraham, who is the father of us all, and as children of Abraham, we are called to bless others. Not just our families or the people we like, but in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's Genesis 22.18. This is still our call to bless others, to bless all nations. Lent is a time of reflection as we follow Jesus in his journey to the cross. At the transfiguration, God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When we get to the upper room for the Passover meal, the last supper, Jesus washes everyone's feet and says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And whose feet did he wash? Ordinary people, businessmen, a rich trader to his own people, tax collector, cheat, a zealot or revolutionary, his betrayer. He made no distinction. 
No judgment. Do it for the least of these, and you've done it to me. So review God's call. It's dangerous. Changes you. It's costly. Signing up, right? <laughs> it requires giving up control. But it includes a promise. And God goes with us as he raises us to new life and fathers us into maturity. Quite a package deal, really. And I would add one more principle. God's call is pivotal to the grand story. The grand love story of a father giving everything to redeem his wayward children. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one story. And these two stories about Abram and Nicodemus were pivotal moments in this grand story. Prior to Abraham, the story was more of a cosmic primeval history. That's what scholars call it. We, we view it from 30,000 feet. But in Genesis 12, the focus suddenly narrows onto one couple. And from then on, from this one couple's following God's call to the best of their ability, the focus stays on individuals and tells of God's patient call from person to person as he moves history toward the one individual who could finally follow his call perfectly. And to the night when Jesus tells possibly one person, although there might have been somebody else there, John, for instance, of um, the secret, which is not a secret. They must be born anew and from above. God had been hinting it throughout history. For example, in Ezekiel 11 and repeated in 36, that we would be given a new heart, one of flesh, and he would remove the heart of stone, also known, by the way, as the heart of stoicism. That's my interpretation, not Ezekiel's. But we serve a holy God, so the final needed piece to the solution was to pay our debt, which Jesus did so, that God could fulfill his heart's desire that we could all go home. That, who, that God's desire that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For his son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. The most Known scripture in the world, even atheists sometimes know this scripture. John 3, 16. I always add 17 because I think they go together. And it's almost like a proverb there. This is our Father's heart. This is the entire Bible in a nutshell. God's love for his creation, his children. God's desire to provide a way for anyone and everyone to be with him forever. If only they heed his call. God's call to each of us is pivotal to the grand story. There is no small call. And a loving father does not call us to death. He calls us home. The way there looks dangerous, but he goes with us. It's costly, but he already paid the price. It changes us, makes us new. It relieves us of control. I've always found Mordecai's comment to Esther intriguing. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Each one of us is in a pivotal time and place in history. We are. 
We've come, each of us, to the place God has put us for a purpose, for such a time as this. Esther did what she was called to do and saved an entire people. Any one of our actions could ultimately have historic consequences. You don't know. Every person who impacted a nation or changed the course of history or saved a life began as an ordinary, run-of-the-mill person who heard and followed God's call. You don't know. One of, one of us could be the next person to change the world if we listen. You don't know. <laughs> Your call, my call, could be pivotal, and I dare say is pivotal in the grand story God is telling. So let's take a couple of minutes to listen. Like Samuel, let's pray, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And be still, because too often we say, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. So this time, let's listen, because your father is calling.